John's Gospel, chapter 15. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now, and they have Bibles. Just get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. And uh, it's always uh, the best things happen when we can hear the Word and then be able to see it with our own eyes. And so just get their attention, and they'll get a Bible to you, and you can enjoy this as fully as the Lord wants you to be able to. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me in chronological order, and we come this morning to what is really one of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible. And uh, you, say, you say that about every passage. So, and your point is? That just, this, is this is very, very special, and very important too, of course. And so, here we are, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'll read out loud, and you just follow along in your hearts. Jesus speaking, and he said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father, you know exactly what you have intended this Christian life to be. All of its richness, all of its fullness, all of its diversity, all of its beauty, Lord. And we pray that as we study these 11 verses this morning, you would not only bring us into a greater understanding of all that you have for us in Christ, but Lord, that you would then more fully bring us into the life, Christianity as you have defined it, Lord, and as we want to experience it and live it. So we look to that work of your Holy Spirit in our individual hearts here this morning. Help us to hear your voice, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Christianity is a relationship, and it is a relationship with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I don't think that it is possible to state that great truth uh, often enough. We think about maybe in just our own minds, if we were to ask the average person in the world today what they understand Christianity to be. I don't know that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ would make the top five. I don't know the top five answers. I don't know that if we were to ask the average person in professing Christianity, what Christianity is about supremely, that a personal relationship with Jesus Christ would be in the top one or the top two. So it's important to state it, though it can seem obvious to many people. Christianity is not supremely a relationship with a church, though church attendance plays an important part and our growth in a personal relationship with the Lord. Christianity is not a relationship 
with a religious system. It is not a relationship with some kind of great uh, charismatic leader. It's a personal relationship with Christ. And in verse 5, Jesus declares himself to be the vine. That is, a grapevine coming out of the ground. And then he likens us to branches that are then attached to that grapevine, which abide in the grapevine. And the whole emphasis is upon union. The whole emphasis is upon relationship with him. Imagine you were to go out into a vineyard. And we're talking about vineyards you can speak just as well of an orchard. Late in the summer. And there's something about being out in a productive place like a vineyard on early 6, 7, 8 in the morning. Even earlier. In a, the end of summer to go out into a vineyard. There's still the cool in the air and you look out on that vineyard that time of the year and it looks like it's just adorned in jewelry, all of the beauty of the green and then the clusters of the purple and the blue and the green. And if we were to be out there together with Christ and we were to then ask him, what is the key to this kind of fruitfulness? And he would, I think, I'm sure just draw us closer then to a particular vine, one particular plant in that vineyard. And while we're all gathered around him with bated breath, wondering what is the answer, the secret to this kind of fruitfulness in a vineyard, I wouldn't doubt that he would point at a great cluster of grapes and then trace from that cluster of grapes back all along the branch until he came to the place where the branch was there connected with the vine and then to say that is the key to the fruit. Everything hinges on the relationship of that branch to the vine. Everything comes out of that relationship. And what Jesus is telling us here is his disciples is that the key to spiritual fruitfulness in our lives is tied completely to the health and the vitality of our personal relationship with Him. Just as everything depends on the health of the relationship between the vine and the branch in viticulture, so too in the Christian life, everything depends upon the health and the vitality of our relationship with Jesus himself. Now because there are so many things that can rise up, even religious things, to compete with Jesus' supreme place in our lives, Jesus declared, you notice in verse 1, not only that he is uh, a vine, but he declares himself to be the true vine. Now, the vine is the source of life for the branches. It is the mediator between the ground and the branches and the fruit of the branches. And just as the vine allows the enormous, uh, the expression of the enormous resources of the earth to come forth in the production of grapes for mankind, originally God had intended that the nation of Israel would become a blessing to all of the nations of the world, that he would be able to express his heart through the Jewish people, to bless the nations of the world through the land of Israel, and then as a result draw all men into the worship of him. That people, when they came into contact with the Jews and their relationship with God, that they would learn, that they would taste and see, that's vineyard stuff, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. The grapevine is a very, very well-known figure for Israel in the Old Testament. I could read many verses to you. I'll just give you one as an example. In Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, the psalmist wrote and said, You, speaking to God, have brought a vine out of Egypt, for you have cast out the nations and planted it, you prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. But what worship 
and what Judaism had become under the Sadducees and under the Pharisees at the time of Jesus did not represent the heart of God. They had ceased long before to be people that were pointing people to God in a relationship with God. They were all about themselves, all about a religious system, all about religious power and powerful religious men and getting people to become dependent upon them so much so that they actually became an obstacle to people coming into contact with God rather than a help. And all of their man-made traditions that they had came up with became more important to them and more authoritative to them than even the very Word of God. And so to come into contact with them was not to come into contact with God. It was not to come into contact with God's Word, but with their man-made traditions. In other words, they were no longer being true to what God had called them to be. They were no longer the true vine. Here you have Jewish religious systems, the main two sects of Judaism at the time, who are at that moment planning the murder and crucifixion of the heaven-sent Messiah. That's how far out of touch they were with the heart of God and representing God. And thus Jesus declared himself to be the true vine, the real vine, the genuine vine. He was saying, in essence, just as the vine puts the branches into relationship with the earth and all of the resources of the earth in order to produce physical fruit, so too I will put your lives into relationship with heaven, with God and all of its resources in order for you to produce have produced within you a rich spiritual life. When you think of a vine in the ground, always think of a mediator. That's what he's saying about himself. He is the mediator. A vine is a mediator between the ground and the resources of the ground and the branch. Christ is the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is the lone mediator that is able to take the things of God, the spiritual things of heaven, and then access them for us and supply them to us. There are many religious systems today that even call themselves Christians and do just about everything possible to keep a person from entering into a simple, personal relationship with Christ, which is what we're called to. And don't think I overstate it. I could be much harsher than I'm going to be this morning. How many of you, don't shout out, had to come out of some religious system that claimed to be Christian for you to even hear that you needed to be born again in order to have everlasting life? and to begin a personal relationship with God. I'll tell you, Jesus declaring Himself as the true vine is as necessary today as ever it was 2,000 years ago. He is the way, the source of spiritual life. No religious system, no religious man. And just as you have to begin with the right stock in a physical vineyard, you have to begin with the right stock spiritually as well. And Jesus is the right stock. He alone can bring us into relationship with God and the resources of heaven. Now in this 11 verses that we just read, the word abiding is, in some form of it is used by Jesus 10 different times in these 11 verses. So... Whatever this abiding is, it is massively important to him. Uh, to get an idea of the importance, notice again in verse 5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, 
for without me you can do nothing. The word abide, technically in the original language, it means to remain, it means to stay, and it means to settle in. It refers to maintaining a healthy, living, unbroken relationship with Jesus. Well, I look at this and I think to myself, since Jesus has told us that apart from him we can't do anything, and since abiding is so important to him, it raises a question in my mind. And the question is, how in the world do I abide? I see it's important to him, so I'm a, I'm a type A person. I'm a doer, I'm a mover, shaker, I want things to happen. So Jesus tells me I'm to abide, I'm chomping at the bit to abide. So I look at this and I determine that I'm going to head out. Jesus has told me to abide, I'm going to head out and I'm going to be the best abider that anybody's ever seen. And I take three steps in that direction, all right, I'm going to abide like nobody else has ever abidden before. It's not a word, by the way. And I take three steps in that direction, then it dawns on me, I don't have the foggiest idea what it means to abide. What does it look like practically? And so Jesus gives us two very practical keys to abiding in one in verse 7 and another in verse 10. Notice how to abide, number one, his words must abide in us, he tells us, in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. This means that we are to make the Word of God the single most influential thing in our life. The single greatest and most dominant influence in our lives is Christians. We are to be familiar with it from Genesis to Revelation. We are to know the characters of the Bible. We're to know them by their first name. We're to know why they're in the Bible. We're to know the lessons of their life, what they are intended to teach us. We're to know the people of the Bible better than we know our own family. We're to know the characters of the Bible certainly better than we know any character of any series that airs on the television. We're to know our Bible and the positions, God's positions on any particular subject better than we know the positions of our favorite talk radio personalities. We are to know our Bible better than we know anything else in life until we know the God of the Bible better than any movie star or singer or famous person or musician or any pop personality until it dominates my life, until it dominates my thinking, it dominates my hearing, it dominates my attitudes, it dominates my doing, until it rules my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength at its core. That is the place that the Bible is to have in the life of the simplest Christian. The average Christian. And the reason that I... I'm not trying to beat you up, by the way. But I think, I think it needs to be said with some force today. And here's why. I've been a Christian for 30 years, so I'm not even an old wise owl by any means. But it is frightening to me the level of illiteracy related to the Bible even among God's people. If we don't know what the standard is, then we have no hope of ever giving it that kind of place in our lives. Because we are Christians in the year 2010 does not mean we are to know the Bible less than they knew it in 35 A.D. or they knew it in 350 A.D. or 1150 A.D. What is described in this book, this is to be how every Christian in every generation is to know the Bible. And the dumbing down related to the Bible 
is astonishing. And the degree of ignorance that Christians are willing to live in related to their knowledge of the Bible is frightening today. And I can't change the world. I can't even change you. I can't even change me supremely. I can make decisions about my life. But this is the place that the Bible is supposed to have in our lives. This is not the uh, upper classrooms. This is not college prep. This is not whatever they call, it slips my mind where these classes are that are the highest in the campuses. This is for every single Christian to know our Bible in this kind of a way. But how in the world do we come to know it in that way? Our own personal time spent in it, devotional time with the Lord. Someone says, you know, I'm a relatively new Christian. And I tried to read the Bible. I don't understand 90% of it. You understand 10% of it. And the next time you'll read it, you'll understand 20% of it. And the next time, 30% of it. And then this piece will connect with this piece and that piece because you've got the teacher living inside of you, the Holy Spirit, and pretty soon this whole thing will begin to crystallize and you'll be understanding what the whole big picture is. But I'll never get there if I don't begin accepting and learning what it is that I can learn by simply reading it myself and then concentrating on that. Another way that we learn the Bible is through Bible studies, like what we're doing here right now this morning and, and all of the other Bible studies that happen in, in, in this uh, church and really in, in any Bible teaching church. We have great resources that are available to us today. Unbelievable amounts of, of Bible study resources that are in printed form, that are in audio form. Uh, you can, we've got a, a, a bookstore that's a part of a church, just one little old church in Modesto, and we've got a bookstore here full of good, great stuff for studying the Bible. And Bible study is something that we can do on our own. We've got a book, we've got a lending library that's a part of the church for the whole idea of learning to study the Bible on our own. The accessibility. Do you know 200, 300 years ago, if you wanted to study the Bible, you were at the mercy of the church services. Here you are new to the Bible, you don't understand what it says, and you'd almost have to wait till the next Sunday meeting or the next Wednesday meeting when the pastor would open up the Bible, and you could almost only learn it as fast as, as he would teach it. Today, you can go online and you can download, or you can get MP3s, you can download onto an iPod, you can listen to seven, ten Bible studies a day, if your schedule allows for it. We can grow in the Bible as fast as we want to grow in the Bible. It's an unbelievable time of opportunity for God's people at this moment in history. Now the challenge is all that technology means is a whole bunch of competition for using it for the Bible, but to use it for other things. But we can grow as fast as we want, every single one of us, in our knowledge of the Word of God today in studying it uh, on our own. And then not only studying the Bible but then giving it a living place in our life, making it the standard of our definitions of right and wrong. Asking circumstance by circumstance in our lives, what does the Bible say about this? What does God say I'm supposed to do here? What does the Word of God say that I'm supposed to say or not say here, do or not do here? That kind of a relationship with the Word of God. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. This is made up of people just like you. And I they dressed funny. They ate different and it was 2,000 years ago in human history. But I guarantee you they aren't, weren't and, are, and we aren't any, any different in any great way from them. And he spoke to them in this vein. In Colossians 3.16 he said, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what he called Christians too. And that's the place that the Word of God is to have in our lives. Now how to abide number two. That occurs, verse 10, by simply obeying his commandments. If you keep my commandments, he said, you will abide in my love. Essentially, 
abiding is obeying. But I can't obey till I know. So I abide by learning what the Bible says about anything and then by obeying what the Bible says about the different areas and circumstances in my life. All begins with knowing the Word of God, but it never can stop there. It has to go on until I actually obey it. And like nothing else that we can do, just simple, ordinary obedience to God's Word assures the health and the stability and the vitality of our relationship with the vine, with Jesus. Abiding is obeying. Now notice the fruit of abiding, the result of abiding. And one of the results of abiding is fruit. Jesus speaks about it over and over in the passage. He talks about fruit, verse 2. More fruit, verse 2. Much fruit, verse 5 and verse 8. Fruit that remains, verse 16. We're talking about verses we're not even going to get into. And all of it raises the question in my mind, and that is, what is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? Part of it is the fruit that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives is a result of indwelling us. The fruit that this abiding produces related to the Holy Spirit Listed in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I guess such there is no law. Another area of fruit has to do with our Christian service. Our place in the great commission of making disciples of all nations. No one can be fruitful, not for any length of time, in our ministries and in our service to the Lord without abiding. And then I think this fruit also speaks of the fruit of Christ-likeness, the fruit of cooperating with the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives to make us a little bit more like Christ each and every day. Now notice that this fruit comes not by striving, it doesn't come by grunting or groaning, but it just comes by abiding, by a simple daily life of obedience to God's Word and His direction. As we just live a a life of simple obedience to the Word of God, there's going to be fruit, much fruit, more fruit, fruit that remains. It will happen as a byproduct of just simply obeying the Word of God. You walk through a vineyard or you drive by one and you never hear the branches grunting or groaning to produce fruit. They just abide. It's just as quiet as can be out there, except for the birds and whatever. Those branches don't make a peep. They just abide in the vine. And then the fruit is a byproduct. If it was up to the branches, and all of this, all the vineyards and wineries would have to change their names. We'd have the grunting and groaning winery. Our branches grunt harder winery. That takes the edge off the whole thing, doesn't it? So no, I don't think I want to try that. Now in verse 2, we get a heads up from Jesus that this kind of fruitful Christianity is also going to mean pruning because pruning is a vital part of a physical vineyard and it is a very important part of producing fruitfulness in, in a Christian's life. And the Father is the vine dresser, we're told, so we know we're in very, very good hands. He knows how to shape a Christian life, doesn't he? None better. I was reading in, uh, a while back in the Napa Register and uh, they, they had just crowned the vine dresser of the year. They have a competition. 
These men that work out in the field and with a knife and the whole deal and everything, they have a competition for not only how many grapes can they cut and how many branches, but how clean are the cuts, how uh, expert, you know, in terms of the placement, all that kind of stuff. And it's a really big deal. They come from all the surrounding counties. They may do it here, and I'm unaware of it. If they don't put it in the paper, how am I going to know this kind of stuff? It was in the Napa Register. And so here's this competition, and the, and the guy that won it, there's a first, second, and third, and prizes and all. The first place winner, he went, it's hundreds of dollars, new tools and certificates and all kinds of stuff that he got. And those branches could say, I was cut by the best. Every one of us as Christians, we can say, I was cut by the best. God's the vine dresser. He's going to cut our lives and cut out of our lives what it is that he knows is, is no good uh, in our lives. And you notice that word in verse 2, that word uh, every. He prunes every one of us as Christians. Sometimes that can be really confusing for us. Lord, I'm just, I'm just being, I'm being a pretty good Christian. I'd probably rate myself a good B+. And here I am going along minding my own business and I'm obeying you the best that I know and everything and then you bring that blade into my life? I mean, what's up here? We think it's a bad thing that he's doing. Pruning is just simply cutting away. And just as that vine dresser prunes the branches in order to produce greater fruitfulness, God is going to cut stuff out of our lives in order to produce new growth and to make us more fruitful spiritually. You know, if you didn't know any better, and you went out driving, say, in January, February, by a vineyard, and you saw the men men and women working out in the fields, you see all of the leaves are gone at this point in time, and all these branches are in all directions and stuff, and... And it looks like, hey, just leave them alone and it'll be that much more that'll grow the next year. But that's not what they do. They just come in and they cut that thing, those those branches and all, and they're in a pile, gigantic piles. They end up being burned in huge fires. And if you look at what the vineyard was before they went through and then what it looked like afterwards, you'd think they'd absolutely have just destroyed the vineyard. But they know better. All that they've done is just ensure that in the new year the branches are going to produce good fruit. Never ever hesitate to cooperate with the Lord when He puts His finger on some area in your life, even a liberty, even something you're free to do as a Christian. And God says, I'm going to cut that away. That's not for you. It may be for everybody else. Every other Christian may do this particular thing, but for you and the plans that I have for you and what I want to do through your life, that's not going to be a part of your life. And he comes in and he cuts that particular area of our life out of, of the way. Sometimes if you leave these vineyards alone and they just continue to grow year after year, all of these branches going in all directions... You wouldn't have a focused branches. They'd be going in a hundred different directions, and that's what a lot of Christian lives are like. They're going in a hundred different directions, and if you leave a vineyard like that, all of the energy, all of the resources from the earth and the vine, it ends up going into wood. It ends up going into leaves instead of going into fruit. So God comes into our lives, and He has to cut away in our lives to keep our lives focused on what He knows is the fruit He's wanting to bring out of our lives. Most of us, God has made us in such a way, or He's called us in, His, in our service to Him, where we're really only good at one or two or three things. But you give me a year or two or three years, I'll have my life, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce so many new things into my life that I'll have branches going all over the place. Instead of my life and my time and my vitality and my health and my resources going into the one or the two or the three things that God has really called me to and called you to. And so He cuts away and He prunes and we shouldn't squawk when He does that because it's necessary. 
I remember when I became a new Christian, and um, uh, before I was a Christian, I had a great love for a game called basketball. And uh, I was even fairly good at it. I wish I could tell you my motives for going to church at Calvary Chapel, Napa, were all pure. Some of them were good, some of them weren't. I liked basketball so much. I had heard that Calvary Chapel in Napa had a great basketball team. So if I went to that church, I could play city league a couple days, nights a week, and then play in the church league as well. So I go to the church, and I get saved and get going in my walk with the Lord. And then I felt the pruning hook. And the Lord spoke to my heart. It was so clear. No more basketball for a while. And he sat me down for a year. He let me play it later. But he sat me down for a year. Because it was just too big of a God in my life. It was too big of a focus and an emphasis. And I, didn't know, I knew how to play basketball to win. I didn't know how to play basketball to glorify God. I didn't even remotely know how to play basketball that way. And so God just pruned it away. So I'm going to take that out. And I sat for a year or more and didn't play because he had just pruned that out of my life while he was developing other things in my life. And I'll tell you, he hasn't stopped that pruning in, in my life to this day. And I know it's true of you. I am so thankful for it because my life, our lives would be just going in so many useless directions if the Holy Spirit wasn't doing that kind of pruning. Now notice in verse 7 that the abiding life will result in a more effective and fruitful prayer life. So when God's Word abides in me, then I know what the mind of God is. I know better what to pray for now. I know what His promises are. I know what the purpose of prayer uh, is. And so my desires become His desires, and my prayers then are going to be in accordance with His promises and, and uh, His will, and thus my prayers are going to become more effective and more fruitful. There's something about abiding, obeying the Lord, that also allows our prayers to be bolder and more confident. We pray with more authority when we are abiding in the Lord, don't we? I'll give you an example. Husbands, have you ever come home from work, and between the time that you've come home from work to dinner time, um, you get in some kind of a, um, not quite an argument, but some kind of a discussion with your wife. Or you get into some kind, not quite an argument, but some kind of a discussion with one of the kids. And you're just as carnal as can be. And the whole family knows you came home and behaved yourself carnally. And then dinner time comes, and it's time for you to pray. How'd that prayer go for you? <laughs> you got to choke those prayers out, and you thank God that they're over more than anything else you prayed. Because we're not abiding in Him, we lose that vitality and that confidence in it, and abiding allows that to be a part of our prayer life. Notice in verse 8 that an abiding life is a life that glorifies the Father. As we, as we just simply obey God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, it creates a very different life than the life that the world produces. You're going to stand out. There's no doubt about that. And so people look and they say, why is she such a nice person? Why is he so patient in that kind of a situation? Why is she so giving in that kind of a situation? Why can't I draw him into a slander or gossip in a conversation? And pretty soon it becomes apparent that our lives are different, and then people begin to ask around. They say, oh, they're a Christian. Oh, okay. That's why they're different. 
And then God is glorified. I remember years ago, a number of years ago, A.C. Green, a very, very committed Christian, was the starting forward for the dreaded Los Angeles Lakers basketball team at the time. He was very, very good. Very important part of what it was, a, was really a tremendous uh, team to watch play. Kind of later in his career, he was uh, playing in, in the NBA, and a guy by the name of J.R. Reed, Dirty Sense College, there are just dirty players. And he came around with an elbow, and he hit uh, A.C. Green in the mouth with an elbow. I mean, it wasn't accidental. I saw the clips. And, and it, it, or I, may, I might not have seen the clips, or it might have just been reported that way, but it was a, a deliberate thing, and I'd seen him be dirty in other games, all the way from college. He hit A.C. Green in the mouth with his elbow so hard that two of his teeth flew out into the middle of the court. A.C. Green's response was to go over, pick up his teeth, and go into the locker room. Well, later he was interviewed by ESPN, and he was asked by the interviewer, what kept you from punching J.R. Reed? So we've got an ex-athlete doing the interview. What kept you from punching J.R. Reed? And uh, A.C. Green said, I just thought to myself that this was the test for whether I was going to live out what I'd been saying all these years. Now apparently, uh, Charles Barkley, and if you don't know him, you don't know him, but if you know him, you know him. Apparently, the next time Charles Barkley saw A.C. Green after this event, he said, Now I believe you're a Christian. <laughs> so it brings glory to God. Notice in verses 9 and 10, that abiding allows us to experience the fullness of God's love for us. God loves us, and Jesus loves us to a degree that is just simply impossible to articulate. You can't, if you owe for a thousand tongues to sing, you can't describe. We scratch the surface in our knowledge of His, his love for us. And you know, when you love somebody, you really love them especially your children, and this is kind of a children thing here, you, when you love someone this kind of way, you want to continually express that love toward them. And the one thing you don't want to have happen is for them to do something in the relationship that robs you of the opportunity to fully express your love toward that child. Some of you are parents who sit in this room today and the conduct of your children, the lack of character of your children has forced you into a place of pain that they may never understand, that they have forced you into a place that you cannot express the, your love in the way that you would like to in terms of blessing them. And that's what happens. And as we obey God's Word, it keeps us in a place that we, God, Jesus is able to fully express His love toward us, and we are able to receive it in its fullness. I always think of Jude 21 concerning this, where Jude wrote, Keep yourself in the love of God. How can I keep myself in the love of God? By abiding. By staying in a place of obedience where the full expression of God's love and His blessings can be poured out upon our lives. I remember hearing Chuck Smith uh, teach on this many, many years ago, and he quoted uh, a hymn that uh, declares, Stand under the spout where the blessings flow out. And I love that picture. You just like, just picture a gigantic tub, and you got that spout that comes down, and all that water, all that blessing, and what you want to do is you just want to plant yourself right under that water. How do you do it? As we obey God's Word, it plants us right underneath that spout so the fullness of His love can be expressed uh, toward us. Simple obedience allows that to happen. And then finally, notice in verse 11, it abiding results in a life of joy. There's a quality of life that comes out of abiding uh, that makes life really priceless. 
And it's the knowledge of putting my head down on a pillow at night and to be able to know that I'm right with God and I didn't do any permanent harm to my fellow man during the day. Sometimes you do things in obedience to the Lord and it can make somebody's life a little harder on the short term, but it's a good thing on the long term. I can lay down my head on the pillow and say, you know, I didn't do any permanent harm to anyone that I came into contact with, with today. I lived a life today that, that I'm confident brought glory to the Lord and that results in a joy in life that is absolutely priceless. Now let me close with a warning. You heard the word finally, so you thought I was closing. How many of you got hope out of that, just for a moment? I would really be negligent, and I'll just be a moment on it though, but I would be negligent if I didn't bring out the warning of Jesus' teaching here in verse 2 and then also in verse 6. In verse 2, Jesus said, If a branch does not bear fruit, then he that is the father, the vine dresser, he takes it away. This appears to refer to the person who professes to be a Christian. They profess to be a branch, and yet there is no fruit indicating that they are connected to Jesus Christ at all. And the father ultimately comes along and he cuts those kind of branches away. Judas Iscariot is a perfect example of that. I don't want to be misunderstood on this at all. There's a tendency, you notice what Jesus is saying there in in, uh, verse 2. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. We're talking about a no fruit situation. So you've got a situation that happens where someone sits in a room like this and says, oh no, I'm, you know, they, they're a Christian, they're on their way to heaven, and they think, I know I'm not the person I should be, I know I'm not the Christian I should be, there's some fruit, a little fruit, but not what I know should be happening. You know, God's going to cut me off and I'm going to be thrown into the fire. Now, he's not talking about little fruit people. That's a different sermon. He's talking about no fruit people here. And that's why Jesus speaks to them, because the disciples are in the same boat that we're in, you know, where it's like, oh no, he's talking about us, we're not going to make it, you know. They've just been arguing over who's the greatest, and he's just told them they're going to deny him, all this kind of stuff. So he says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. I'm not talking about you guys. That's what Jesus is telling them. I'm talking about a different kind of person. Here's how I understand it that it makes sense to me, maybe it will be helpful to you. It is impossible for God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human life and for that life not to change. There will come with the Holy Spirit a hunger for God's Word and a desire to obey the Bible and a desire to grow in a relationship with the Lord. So it's talking about a person who can candidly be raised in a religious environment, can come to a church like even this one, which puts a great emphasis on the Word of God, for weeks and for months and for years, but in terms of their life, that life never changes, it never becomes mocked or characterized by obedience to God's Word. Jesus is warning that, in verse 6, that those branches are thrown into a fire and burned. It speaks of judgment, and it says that kind of person is headed toward a judgment. A person who says, yes, I'm on my way to heaven, and I have a relationship with Christ, but there's... Uh, no fruit, there's no obedience to His Word, there's no abiding in His Word, there's no relationship with Christ, there's all disobedience, that person is self-deceived. Absolutely self-deceived. And here are branches that think they're branches, but God knows they're not branches, and He cuts them away. And as hard as it may be, to learn that I am self-deceived, 
on a morning like this, in a room like this, it is far better to hear it now than to learn about it on the other side of death when it's too late to change. So if you sit here today, God's not giving me any names. It's between you and God. But you sit here today, and you think you're on your way to heaven because of a prayer you made when you were eight years old and nothing about your life has changed. There are no fruit sense. Or that you have attended church for years and years and years, but that word has never made a dent in your life. There's no change there. You need to realize the, 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 the dilemma that you're in, the predicament that you're in. And not put any confidence in what you've had with God thus far. I don't want a single person that really knows the Lord to doubt their salvation at all. But I don't want one single person to leave this room today self-deceived and thinking they are on their way to heaven when Jesus warns that this kind of person is not a true branch will be cut away. What's the solution to it? Put your faith in Christ. And this time really do it. Settle the issue of His Lordship in your life. Jesus said, a group of people came to Him. They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God. That you believe in Him. That is the Messiah in Jesus. That you believe in Him whom He, the Father, has sent. That's how we get everlasting life faith in Christ. And so, the importance of not being self-deceived, but then the importance if you're sitting here today, you say, I've never pretended to be a Christian. I've never professed to know Christ. I'm not a pretender. I'm not a player. I'm not one of those branches. I haven't even had a chance to do that yet. I don't know anything about Christ. What I've learned is what I've heard from you today, but I want a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want a relationship with God today. What do you do? You do the same thing, only from a different vantage point. You put your faith in Christ for salvation this morning, and He will begin a personal relationship with you. That's what Christianity is. Now I close with this simple thought. I am in awe of the privilege of having a personal relationship with God. If I was God, the most I would have gotten from me is I'm going to forgive you and I'll put you up in heaven forever. But don't even think about that there's going to be anything between you and I in terms of relationship. I didn't want to be friends with me when I became a Christian. That's why I became a Christian. And he wanted to start a relationship with me and with you. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm glad for the forgiveness of sins. I'm glad for all of that. But I am humbled that he was gracious enough to make a way for people like you and me to know him personally and have that kind of a relationship with him and to think about how committed he has been to that relationship. Christianity is a relationship. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray.